Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today worked at Rare for a ridiculous amount of time before he became the co-founder of our Playtonic Games. I'd like to welcome Gavin Price. How are you doing? Hello, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, Likewise. Yeah, a, really lo- a really long time at Rare uh, makes me just feel old. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's the it's, truth, so it's no good. hiding from it. It's good on the CV though, because it shows that you're a veteran and you can stay with the play, uh, at a company for so long, doesn't it? But then you That's went and right, co-founded yeah. a company with people from Rare, so I suppose that doesn't matter so much. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, exactly. sorry, what were you going to say? I, I just, no, I just realised the other day, like fifteen years at Rare, and I'm now coming upon half that time with Playtonic. It's almost like what, like it's like. Seven years at Playtonic. It was going to be fifteen years of Playtonic at this rate. It just mm. feels like yesterday we started the company, and, and here we are. So. But you stayed with well, obviously you were at Rare for a long time and Playtonic for a long time. So there's obviously some sort of camaraderie there that makes you want to stay with them for so long. Because there are some game developers that kind of just go here, there, and everywhere. They just jump from studio yeah. to studio. But you never did that, that. No, no, that that and laziness. Really, you'd have to get up <laughs> and look around. <laughs> and you can't be bothered it's not your, that's not your jam yeah this is all right if it isn't broke don't fix it this is yeah. okay yeah yeah fair enough fair enough because at your time at rear uh i saw that you did like a lot of uh quality assurance right but that can mean quite a lot of different things depending on different gaming studios so what did that mainly involve for you um basically it was just uh, a nice way of saying tester um, right back then and yeah joined joined the company and straight away it was just testing games testing them bugs bug finding bug finding bug finding um recording your your gameplay on a vhs tape recorder that was the mm. setup back then nothing fancy then going back and checking for all the bugs that had been found to see if they've been fixed or not and then going again. And it was like an endless cycle of that. Um, it was uh, pretty much focused on one game at a time. And every now and again, you'd get a build from another game coming in for a particular milestone or something. It was kind of like a bit of a breath of fresh air. So there's a lot of games. I joined this kind of like perfect storm of games coming out where Donkey Kong 64 was coming out. Um, there was a, a Mickey racing game on Game Boy. Jet Force Gemini was coming out. Perfect Dark was coming out. And hot on the heels of those titles were Banjo, Tui, Conker, a uh, load of other Game Boy titles like the, the Donkey Kong Country on Game Boy and Perfect Dog. And there was just content constantly coming through. And I remember I was, I was in testing for about 18 months. And when I left to join um, one of the dev teams as a designer, um, it was the Banjo, Tui team, um, I left at the point where all of a sudden there was barely anything <laughs> happening in testing and they they had like the best paid lifestyles of, of everyone in the company for, for a short while there um and yeah but i i wouldn't have changed anything for the world it was like a great like uh entry into the industry of just bam full on all the time doing all these things in this like dream company that you know i couldn't believe i had the opportunity to go and work for so how did that even come about how did you even end up at rear it's uh, it's quite a nice story. Um, I, I was at college um, in, in a town called Burton-on-Trent, which is about, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes drive 
away from, from Twycross and Rare. And um, I was working part-time in a, a local game store, um, which was called Game. And um, every now and again, some uh, Rare staff would come in, they'd, they'd have, proudly have their uh, dev T-shirts on and stuff. So you knew they were from Rare and me and the other guys working there would constantly probe and say, what's, what's coming out? What are you working on? What are you doing? And they'd never say anything. But, you know, you kind of chatted and bonded over the common passion of, of games. And um, one of them just mentioned to me and said, you know what? All I did was say to, send in a letter to her saying, hey, you know, I'd love to um, get a QA role with you and see if I can work my way up the, the career ladder with you. And he, he just encouraged me. He said, why don't you try it? I think, you know, every now and again, we're, we are looking for new testers. So I just did it. Um, and I got an interview and I, they, they decided they wanted to offer me a, a role and uh, I had to go back into college and I was on a computing course at the time trying to work my way into the industry as a programmer and I just said you know I was 19 I said sorry I've been offered a chance at like my, my dream company so I'm, I'm leaving and, uh, and that was it never looked back oh wow that's that's a cool story so in, yeah, in, re- yeah. in regards to some of the the testing is there certain bugs that are quite common? Like during your time, would there be a certain bug that you'd always find? There's types of bugs, yeah. Um, like the walking out of environment, there's just some hits or collision missing on certain walls. Um, you, you, we were always trying to be sneaky and break the mechanics of the game. Yeah, and, of course. Uh, and because the dev teams were always trying to push ideas and come up with cool new features and gameplay, there was lots of scope for us to subvert that and turn that into bug finding i remember the clockwork kazooie bombs in banjo tui they were a nightmare for the team we were just (laughs) firing them off everywhere and going walking them all around and getting out the map in you know every location possible normally in a 3d platformer in the original banjo you know you're just going around on the ground and you've got quite a big collision as banjo compared to a little tiny little clockwork kazooie bomb that you can launch into areas of the map that you just thought the character should can't normally get there so there was, there was things like that, and in Perfect Dark, um, I remember one of the missiles was after you launched it, you went into a first-person view and just controlled the missile remotely or those little spy cam devices. And again, you could just take them absolutely anywhere and try and go as high as possible and out of the environment. So it was cool because like the dev teams were putting in these amazing features for the games, but they gave us a lot of... Uh, <laughs> it was fertile breeding ground for bugs. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But I suppose the cool thing about that is every game would have been different in terms of the different bugs that you found, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Perfect Dark, again, being a first-person shooter and going and taking the character and everyone crawled and crouched around every nook and cranny. And it was was very different because you could get the camera out of the environment, even though the character actually wasn't. It looked like you were then looking through pillars and stuff and seeing areas that you shouldn't do so first person games that was, that was very different um mickey's racing was on the n64 which everyone loved in testing at the time we really really enjoyed that one that was so bug free that was one of the bug free, most bug free games we ever we ever played and got our hands on so that was that was in contrast to the others that was a great game which came into testing there was never many too many bugs with it or, or issues and we got more time enjoying the game itself and um just just being able to play it and get get really good at it and things like that yeah because I, sp- I suppose people have to remember is 
in that day and age, there was no patches, right? There was no second chance for like another version of the game or an uploaded patch. So you had to nail everything before release. Oh yeah, and it was so serious as well. Everyone, everyone had this aligned passion of wanting to ship the most perfect version of the game possible, whether you're on the dev team uh, or, or the test team. And um, it kind of hurt when the game would go out and you kind of find that, Actually, there seems to be a pretty common and repeatable lockup. And remember, we had internal NOA testers as well testing our game. So, oh, you know, yeah, it wasn't just us. We had them and you'd have thought between two really passionate, you know, decent sized um, test teams, you'd get a lot of coverage there to find everything. But even then, certain things would happen and you'd just be like, wow, I can't, can't believe this. And I remember Crystal Caverns on DK64 seemed to have a bit of a reputation that that could freeze um quite frequently and honestly we've, we've played through that level or you know a hell of a lot of people playing for it over and over and over again we just weren't seeing these issues and you never know what's going to happen when a game goes out into the wild play styles could be slightly different people could just be doing things differently we might get comfortable playing so we hardly touch the camera controls but then other people are spamming the camera controls who are, who are not so familiar with the game when it goes out into the wild so yeah it's it's uh strange feeling but it's, it's kind of gutting when someone did go out and kind of heard, heard back that oh no this thing's quite getting quite common now because mm. how far along development does the testing stage usually start um again it varied by by the game but it, it used to be coming right at the end of the game um, oh right, right so right, as right yeah, yeah. So it'd be a well polish, polish and content because people at Rare couldn't help themselves. You wouldn't get away with it these days. But um, no, no. Back then, it was very much the final, final hurdle. Um, pretty much around three months of constant, constant playing. But you might get, you might have got an early bird builds in from about six months before before launch. Uh, right. So, yeah, it was a very focused, high intense period right at the very end. So would you just be, I suppose you'd just be jumping from game to game. Yeah, and yeah. You know, the dev teams, it was pretty much on them when they thought their game was ready. Um, and so there was no planning to make, you know, no one was thinking, as a business, should we release maybe one or two games a year? But make sure that they're spread out, you know, and make sure it's easy for the test teams or the other teams, any teams where they have to work across all products. That, that it's kind of smooth. There was no, there's no planning or thought going in like that. It was like when your game's ready, it's ready, and it goes, it, it gets queued up. And you know, it's it's bizarre really to think that Rare, perhaps in the space of six months, shipped DK64 and Jet Force Gemini and Perfect Dark, and yeah. it was, and then you know, you, the, there there was a lean period before then. There was a lean, slightly lean period after then. Um, and as a business, it didn't make much business sense, but it was all about the quality of the games and when they were ready, they were ready. So, yeah, you it, you went just went, well, went, certainly when I joined, game, 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 game. And then obviously when I moved on into design and left my testing buddies behind, all of a sudden it was like nothing, calm. What are they doing? <laughs> a lot of them were, I think, I think what was basically told to do was play a lot of the rival machines um and content and see what's happening in <laughs> elsewhere you know in, in the world of games yeah because obviously during the super nintendo nintendo 64 era, era like the rare were kind of like nintendo's secret weapon like the, mm. the the quality of the releases was 
you know the closest thing to Nintendo that you could get. So was there was there a bit of a bit of a competitiveness there, or st- to try and match Nintendo's level everyone, of quality? Everyone was competitive with Nintendo, with whatever was happening on any other machine, with each other in, internally at Rare the teams. Everyone was mega competitive, and that I think really helped people put the passion and the time in to go and hit a quality bar that otherwise wouldn't have been reached. Yeah, yeah. So how has uh, the the vibe changed, I suppose, from obviously before you left uh, when it was taken over from Microsoft um, and then you did all the Kinect stuff. Did did the morale change or was it quite quite the same? Quite Again, similar. it varied from, from individual to individual. There's some individuals who, I guess, felt like um, the some of the luxuries and advantages that enjoyed during, during the Nintendo era maybe no longer existed. Um, I personally didn't, didn't have any issues. You know, I was just this still really young, naive child working at the company that dreamt, dreamt of working at and was heads down thinking, no, well, this is the game I'm now on, which was grabbed by the goalies at the time. Um, and I'm, I was having such a whale of a time with that team and we all massively enjoyed making that game. Um, I didn't have time to stop and think about anything else. Our, our team... And everyone's teams felt like um, individual companies anyway. So it was almost like our company. Nothing yeah. changed. It's We were making games before and it didn't matter whose machine they were going out on or, or what was going to, um, who, who was publishing. You were just making the best game you possibly could. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, life carried on pretty much the same for me after the Microsoft acquisition. Yeah. Because when you first kind of moved away from quality assurance and into actual development, was it overwhelming at first or were you ready? You were like, yes, you know, I'm ready for this. It's a little scary because, again, you know, I was 19 when I joined, 20 when I went up into, um, into development. So still really, really quite young. And there was this, you know, it didn't, it didn't, this feeling of oh my goodness, I'm working with these people who have been watching their name scroll on credits when I've been completing Donkey Kong Country as a child and all these games. Um, that feeling never left me for so many years. So it was a little bit kind of a dream state and sense of awe. And you know, I'd, I'd be sat there all of a sudden joining the company as a tester and seeing these people walk past and going up the drive and going into the headquarters and I was kind of like starstruck. And then when, when they actually, you know, Greg Mayles um, um, took me under his wing and, and dragged me into the design on his team. Um, and that team had a real good camaraderie already built into it, full of these, what I would call superstar names. I'd just kind of sit there, bit, you know, awestruck in these meetings and every now and again, just think to myself and go, how did how did this happen? <laughs> how did this happen? Like a pinch um, me moment. <laughs> proper, yeah, proper like that. And it it was just I never they were they were all so nice. I never felt under pressure to deliver or be a certain way. It was just kind of no contribute, contribute positively and 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 do things well. And at the time it was just about being a sponge and getting as much of Greg's thoughts and processes and ways of thinking creatively out of him um, passively almost, you know, he's, 
it was a bit Mr. Miyagi like. You didn't realize you were being taught <laughs> until, he, until he was like, nah, I'll design a level. <laughs> and you're like, okay. <laughs> and you got to it. Because I have noticed with a lot of the rare guys is that there's a certain infectious energy there that just doesn't seem to wane. It's just always, it's like you guys are like the hamsters on the wheel and you just keep going and going and going. And obviously the, the industry can be pretty brutal at times. So I'm wondering how you managed to maintain that energy. I think a lot of people didn't. And I think some people perhaps didn't. And I think when within, within Rare, under the stewardship of the stampers, you kind of absorbed their way of thinking and their way of working and their work ethic, which was very strong and very fair. Um, but um, it, it was hard work, but gratifying work. And I guess, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't really know of a project getting that far and then being cancelled. That was kind mm. of unheard of. That's yeah. kind of like, what? That, that happens in the video game industry. Yeah, didn't you know? No. <laughs> we start projects, we, you know, maybe early on, we'll start something, but within a month or within two months, it's gone again and we, we go on to the next idea. But as soon as the game starts getting to these playable build states, it's kind of, no, you're going to see this through to the end and you're going to make it great. And even even a game like Conquer, which started off as a very cutesy um, platformer, hmm. um, evolved and, and, you know, went through a real good um, twist and turnaround into, into what it became. And um, it, was, it was a really strong advantage of, of feeling safe in, in Rare's environment, that you, your work was valued and, you, you know, you're going to see this through and you're gonna, something good's going to come of it. Um, and I guess some people did lose a bit of energy when, I, you know, it, things did slightly change and we, th there was a bit more frequency of starting something, thinking, yeah, this is going somewhere, we're going to do this, and then, oh, and then it didn't come out. Or game dev cycles all of a sudden became much more huge than what we were used to traditionally. Mm -hmm. And there was a big adjustment period reacting to that, I think. Um, and that, that perhaps affected some people, um, as you'd expect. Um, yeah, it just depends on the individual. I, I, you know, myself and a lot of others have always just had this. It doesn't, the things out of your control, right, out of your control. Yeah. Don't worry about them. Just focus on what you can do and, and how, how well you can do it. It's a good way of looking at it. How long were you guys, I mean, sitting on the idea of forming Platonic? Like, how long had that been in the back of your mind? So it started for me about five years before Platonic actually did. Um, oh, wow. Okay, that's you know, quite a while. Yeah, shipped. After we shipped Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, um, the studio went through um, a bit of a change. It's the first time redundancies ever occurred. Um, there was a round of redundancies, and there was a big shift in, in tone and feel and all of a sudden insecurity for a lot of people at the company. Um, and I survived that round of redundancy. And it was nice to know that they, they, they wanted me to stay on. Um, and this studio had kind of been given this remit of, look, make yourself super important to the first party lineup of, um, of Microsoft game studios. And how, how are we going to do that? And they didn't need an FPS from us. They had Halo. You know, they, they didn't need um, um, some other things. They didn't need a racing game from us, for example. Um, Banjo had been tried, Viva Pinata had been tried, Cameo had been tried, none of which ever really were kind of hitting the, um, 
commercial successes required to become IPs anyone wanted to double down on. So, mm. um, yeah, as soon as I, I felt that ear and shift change, I thought, oh, we've kind of lost something a little bit here. Um, is, is it going to come back? And you're kind of waiting to see how it goes. And, you know, we threw ourselves into connect game development. Um, but what became apparent to me was, uh, this isn't this isn't kind of what I signed up for. Um, uh, a certain way of working, a certain style of project. Um, a, a, you know, it, it was really then that I thought, no, I want to get back to how things were. But how things were needed to change as well. What, what's the right way of going about it? So I kind of just sat on a lot of thoughts for a few years. And it was... It was this meeting point in time that crowdfunding was really taking off and indie development and digital distribution and access to um, middleware engines. It, it created this perfect mix and point in time to say, right, the next opportunity to switch track, do it, change track and do it. Um, uh, and I did, and that was just after shipping Connect Sports Rivals, I think it was 2014. Um, and it was then on me, I, I just had to convince the first few people, the first few key dominoes to join, and then every, all the rest of the dominoes fell in place in due course. Did you, did you have like this perfect pitch planned to all of them? Nothing at all. Like we, <laughs> we went for this kind of, um, again, it was another round of redundancies at the time when a few of us left, and it was a few of the people that I saw as, wow, they'd be key to starting up a new, a new studio. And it was just over the like the leaving curry night that we all went for, leaving the with each other, um, which was probably ever you know everyone was intending to be see you guys, good luck, all the best for the future. Maybe we'll bump into each other again in five, ten, who knows how many how many years. Um, but um, Chris Sutherland was there, and I'm, I remember saying to Chris, well, "I've been thinking about this for a long time," um, and that, it was just a really nice simply laid out conversation as well i've been thinking about this and if we did this and this and this i, I think we could start a company up and it's gonna get it's got a really good chance of going well and being successful um and he he was initially oh no well i kind of thought i'd be doing this thing now i've left rare i think he wanted to go down the full-on voice actor route oh and, wow and do something very different yeah um but i you know i think i think he saw a logic to what i was saying and uh, a couple of the artists did as well, um, Stephen Hurst, Steve Mayles, um, Mark Stevenson. And, it, you know, it kind of just made sense. And the more I, I kept everyone in touch over email and said, look, I'm looking into doing this. I'm going to I'm gonna go get some um, grants funding as well, which we can use for match funding. Then if we can raise this amount of Kickstarter, which I think is realistic, then we could have a team of six of us maybe just start and get working on a game and then, depending on what happens next, we can scale the team up slowly. And I reckon we could be about a team of 10 people and just, just focus on being that kind of size team and making games like we used to. And really the, the overheads would be far lower than what we'd ever seen at um, working at a first party Microsoft studio, for example. So making the business valid and, and commercially successful didn't seem to be unrealistic. Um, and that's the way it turned out. Well, it was unprecedented as well because, like, you started that Kickstarter and you met like your target within forty-five minutes, didn't you? Yeah, it was. It was a. It was a. It was something that burned very bright and very fast. 
Um, yeah. yeah, and it was an incredible feeling at the time. Um, but basically what that Kickstarter did to me personally, all my planning for the previous two, three years um, was out the window. <laughs> that, it wasn't like accounted for in the business plan that, oh my goodness, in the nicest possible way, yeah, the yeah, business plan was, it was, was invalid <laughs> all of a sudden. It was like, no, that's not going to work. And we had to get our heads around and think, oh, okay, maybe we're going to be a team uh, which is a bit bigger and we can have a bit more fancier things and shiny bells and whistles and start thinking about a better office location and spend more money with Grant and Dave, for example, doing music. And um, yeah, it just just snowballed and went, faster than we realized we weren't prepared for it um we, we had to think on our feet a lot but um the some, somehow again i think it's that in that bred into us attitude that we had from early on at rare yeah. was you're just gonna have to work hard at it go get your head down and focus on the things you can control um and as a student as a group of people for the first time we were having to run a business do things like payroll hr admin legal things we'd never worked with a middleware engine before we'd never worked with a publisher before we'd um, never done a crowdfunding campaign before we'd never shipped on anything other than one console at a time so a multi-platform release we were having to handle um, physical goods for the crowdfunding campaign it's like all this stuff we were just doing on the side of trying to make the game as best we could as well and spend as much time doing that. And it was such a, a difficult first hand to be dealt with, but we'd put ourselves into that situation. We knew if we survived it, then we can build on that from there as well. And we don't have second time around. We don't have to worry about a lot of those things that were firsts was the first time. And we had, we'd have had that new experience and that kept us going as well. Yeah. Because how long did it take you to kind of tweak that business plan? Well, I suppose you didn't even tweak it. You just started a whole new one. But obviously, you would have had to do it within a short time frame, I'm sure. Yeah, and we didn't have time to focus too much on it. We were kind of just like, this is going to take us where we're going, and we're not in control of it right now. Yeah. Um, focus on the game. Focus on trying to spend as much time as possible on doing that and not, not um, all these other things that as first-time business owners we had to – you know, we just had to do on the side. Um, I remember every month the bank statement coming in, I had to reconcile it and just sit there going through all our invoices, receipts, ingoings, outgoings, and just tick them off and match them to this statement. And I was thinking, and I just used to joke, I used to say, that should go in my motos not doing this today. Not that I can compare myself with him as a designer or a creator, of course, but you kind of just think, yeah, all this, all these tasks we're doing, other companies there's people there to do this for us yeah for you and uh, we, we're you know it took a while for us to get into that situation really it's only really been happening in the past even now the past two or three years in terms of things like having an operation manager and um, head of production we didn't have a producer on the first game as well and producers are worth their weight in gold really yeah any producers listening right now go ask for a raise you'll get it um <laughs> <laughs> yeah great great producers really keep everything on track and um yeah we we got one got one in again a former x-ray guy who we'd known from the past and knew was perfect yeah um so uh yeah the, the, <laughs> we, we, we survived <laughs> the other thing with ukulele is the hype as well because there was so much hype for that game 
So like, yeah. what, what, what was it from like a pressure standpoint in terms of trying to manage it's, the weight of expectations and trying to meet them? I guess, I guess the people on the team who were, you know, um, experienced the next rare people, we've been used to that our whole careers. As soon as rare announced something, there was hype. But and that was the way it was. So we just did what we always did. And it was just like, don't listen to it. Get your head down. Focus on the game. <laughs> we again we we'd, we'd put that pressure on ourselves anyway whether people were hyped for it or not um so yeah you know it's i think it's fair to say our second game far less hyped much higher in quality um when, when it came out so again the hype it's nice that it's going on but it doesn't affect us um negatively or positively really we're just always just going to be focused on making the game as, as quality as we want it to be that we're happy with it. Yeah, because I remember with the first uh, ukulele, it came out and then um, uh, not too long after that, you did like a massive patch, which fixed a lot of the, the issues that critics had. But were you aware of some of those issues beforehand? Or was it after release, you're like, right, we need to fix all this stuff? We're, we're aware of some beforehand, um, yeah. but you know we were. What what we really wanted to do was say, right, we've shipped this game, and it's purely been funded by ourselves via the Kickstarter. Mm. And in hindsight, you could argue that maybe taking some more money from the publisher and spending more time increasing the quality of the game, which you know would have helped the version that was shipped on the Switch, for example. Um, was probably the best day one version. If we'd have been able to achieve that on the other consoles, um, that would have been that would have been a good way of doing it. But as business people, we were kind of naive and were like worried about oh, taking money from another company. It feels like you're in debt to another company as well. Right. Looking back commercially, the game you know it pays off that. That, that debt immediately and it would have changed our commercial terms as well no doubt as well in terms of the back-end revenues and splits so lots of pros and cons for how we could have done it a different way but we did we carried on this way um we got the game to a point where you know for, for the resources we had we were super proud of it honestly if you looked into any of a 3d platforming game the kind of budget required to go and make something of the scope we were attempting is five to ten times what we had. Um, oh, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a tiny, tiny budget for a modern 3D platformer. Um, you know, you, you've you've not got any of the kind of luxuries like um, you, want, you want accessibility options these days. You want voice acting. You want nice cutscenes. You want um you want to be able to spend and afford to be able to say you know what we're going to finish the game and there's six months we're going to do tons of ur feedback and find all these issues that players are going to have and fix it and get all that done it all just comes down to time and money uh and the way we were set up we just didn't have that um to to fall back onto and and, and make a decision so were there certain things within the game that just took a long time to, to get right? I mean, whether it was the camera or a, a minecart level or something? Um, yeah, I think one of them was performance, um, hitting performance across all, all like versions. Like frame rate? You know. Frame rate? Yeah, 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 frame rate. And we were, 
um, again, for the first time using an engine we were not used to. And, you know, again, if you look at the second game, we hit 60 frames a second um, yeah. constantly on, on all formats. And I, I don't think you can look at Impossible Lair and think, oh, yeah, but it's, it's sacrificed in its art quality in any way. I don't think it is at all. I think it's a great looking game and it yeah. runs well. And with more time, we'd have been able to do that on the first game as well. Um, spend more time and we learned many more do's and don'ts um, across the art pipeline software pipeline design pipeline in terms of how we could have designed and made things easier so it's all just about getting that experience surviving it and in, you know doing it better next time around so we had to kind of do that first game and there was no no other way of finishing it other than the way we did really um but so much hard work was just spent on making things perform and right near the end. Yeah, yeah. But was there a specific uh, part of development that just took the longest? Like with 3D platformers, what, what would be the most hardest component of it, do you think? Um, I think camera's got to be up there. You, you never feel like your camera's done. Well, uh, cameras kind of... are quite difficult anyway, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they are. <laughs> They're very difficult. Um, AIs as well and boss fights. Um, we, we're actually pretty inexperienced as a team for doing AI and boss fights. And it probably shows. Um, so, again, they take, they're kind of like these moments in the game where a lot of time, effort and money has to go in to make them incredible. And you look at them and you go, wow, that's, that's like one of the worst cost to benefit ratios in every video game ever you know um, for, the, for those moments you spend with a with a boss um the game moves on and you never go back and replay that it's not like an area of a level which has got all these multiple functions and you know the player's going to be spending lots of time there crisscrossing it and coming back to it um so bosses as well they were in ais they were they were really difficult because you've got to leverage difficulty as well right like to to make sure that it, it doesn't spike too much i suppose yeah yeah like you want you want it to be challenging but not too challenging where someone just wants to throw the controller yeah and you know even again something inherited within the first those first two games somewhat less the second game but definitely the first game was was just born from my experience at rare of um, we knew our audience kind of liked a challenge and you knew you were going to get your money's worth from, from, from a game from us. And even back then at Rare, we made some really difficult sections and, and, and features and uh, levels within, within games. And we just brought that along. And a lot of people at Rare, as devs, were actually very skilled gamers as well. Mm. And we were kind of told to take advantage of that. And so we'd, we'd do that with content. And it was only if you ever found out that... Um, uh, I guess someone from high up in the company couldn't manage what you were doing in the game. You were asked to then tone it down, but that was that wasn't that that often. So, yeah, the difficulty spikes in in rare games kind of we carried on with that attitude a bit too much on the first two games, I think, and then moving forwards from this point on, well, I can I can see a document in front of me which talks about um, accessibility and uh, and many many things and. Yeah, we'll probably um, we'll probably broaden the, uh, our approach 
it's a, it's a difficulty in the future. I mean, I'm not a game developer, but I mean, I have a saying in my life anyway, if you want to be the best, you study the best. So would your team go and like play other 3D platformers? Like obviously like Mario was like pedestal near the top. So would would you go play Mario games to try and get inspiration? Or even some of the <laughs> older stuff like the Banjo-Kazooie and Donkey Kong 64 stuff that yeah, uh, yeah. did rare. There was an element of that, but for, for the first two games, the company's been in this kind of like startup mode where we've on, we feel we always felt like we're on these limited resources. What can you do with the time and money we've got? And there wasn't a great amount of time that we had to go and do that as much as we wanted. Um, that's changed now. We we do so much more research. We look for the AAA and indie best in class experiences we can find and try and absorb as much knowledge out of them really an insight to, to help us with, with the games we have in development today um, as well as just play things as well which didn't quite hit the mark for one reason or another but we you know they for those types of games that we see really interesting reviews where they're on the cusp of doing something and being a lot better than they are but um you, you know by by playing them you can you can find out a lot more and, and dig deep into them and hopefully extract some sort of insight and knowledge which makes you think differently about the game or how you're going to approach something in, in your own title mm. so as time's gone on and you've moved more and more into kind of like head game developer has that affected your ability to play a video game like can you just play it and enjoy it or do you end up critiquing it and picking it apart while you're playing it it's uh, i think it's different for different people i, I personally I've always been doing this as I, as I play a game, thinking about it, not just as a, a pure pure gamer. Now I've got a um, you know I've got a son who's now six, and I dread to think how many hours we've put into just sitting with each other, playing through Mario Odyssey over and over and over again with each other. Mm. And you know, it's there's there's a lot of insights that I've learned about myself there that as a as a time poor adult. I actually kind of benefit from a lot of the features that are put in not just Mario Odyssey, but any game in terms of accessibility and difficulty, features that help me make the most of my time that I can actually commit to gaming and get the most out of what I'm playing. So I don't have to go through long fail loops, for example. So all these replays of Mario Odyssey with my son, they were done with the assist mode on. And oh, right. I don't think I'll ever, I don't think I'll ever, like when I first played through the game, I didn't even know there was an assist mode in it. I just played through Mario Odyssey and enjoyed it. Yeah, this is great. Oh, died. Oh, this is a bit annoying. I've got to go back sometimes a little bit further than I'd ideally like to go and then continue my progress. But with assist mode on, I didn't care that it made the game easier or direct you or focus you a little bit more. That, that wasn't of interest to me. What was a massive benefit for me was just the fail loops were cut to almost nothing. So you always felt like you were making progress with the system. On. And as a time poor person, that really struck a, struck a chord with me in terms of, wow, I really appreciate this feature. So um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of topics and debate going on when games are kind of broadening their approach to difficulty right now, but it, it's more than just difficulty. This, this helps, this helps people particularly people like myself of a certain age, not, not got the time they used to have to be able to dedicate to gaming. This helps us play more of the games that we want to play for longer. 
stuff like this. And I think when you say broad appeal, that for us doesn't mean broad appeal in one direction for a younger audience. It actually means broad mm. appeal. So everyone from four to 80 can can have no excuse to not pick up our game and say, okay, I can get my money's worth and value and enjoyment from playing this game. We, we shouldn't be creating a game and it having these inherent ways of dictating how people can enjoy it or when they can enjoy it. We should be, we should be breaking down those barriers. Well, I think as time goes on with technology as well, that will continue to evolve in terms of the accessibility factor. Mm. Yeah. 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 Accessibility. Um, it'd be great to see even more things occur at a system level on, on platforms as well. Um, but even just quick resume modes as well. Um, you know, that as, as the technology has brought in the ability to be able to do that, that's that's been great. All of a sudden, you don't have to think, well, I'm going to hit start. And then you're watching your watch go, when's this thing loading? When's this going to happen? Like, it doesn't really happen now. If, you, if you're focused on one game at a time, um, you, you know, you, the platforms, they just, they just quickly get you back into action ASAP. Yeah, yeah. How do you find it developing for multiple systems as opposed to the times when at Rare you'd just be developing for one? Like how much does it actually change in terms of like the budget and the actual development process? There's, there's a little bit because as a multi-platform game, you kind of get compared to every platform's first-party game. So you might yeah. get compared to Switch and like, ah, but, you know, your, your, your rival product on Switch and only on Switch has a lot of time spent around motion control, for example. Um, and we're like, well, we, we don't have time for that. So if we do that, that's, that's not something that benefits all platforms. And likewise on PlayStation with touch controls, adaptive triggers. and So in the past, we've not really been able to push any individual platforms, USPs, strongly but moving forwards we kind of see that as pretty important actually because you're going to get compared whether you like it or not to these first party games where their remit is to produce a brilliant game which makes the usps of the platform shine and mm. um those comparisons are going to be there they're not going to go away people are not going to stop making them so you kind of have to moving forwards i think spend a bit more time and budget thinking about them as well yeah, well, particularly, I mean, with this announcement of Microsoft by Activision, I think the exclusive thing is going to become even more prominent among the different systems, right? So mm. it's going to be fierce in terms of the competition for you guys because you have to compete with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's been like that way for a number of years now. The number of games, the number of game makers uh, are outgrowing the number of gamers growth even though game growth is is absolutely fantastic and phenomenal and it's, you know it's kind of been one guilty upside of the pandemic uh, is is that's kind of accelerated the industry forwards a little bit i think um but no it's it's ever more important on us to to keep pushing a quality bar the quality bar isn't going to stay static it's going to keep going upwards we've got to remain competitive and we've uh, we've got to really focus on some some really strong USPs for our, for our games to make them stand out. Yeah, because there's so much competition now, right? Uh, mm, and yeah. you're not just competing with the AAA, but there's all the indies as well. And it's so much easier to get your game out there. Yeah, so it, I suppose, well, in, in the sense, uh, it's good, I suppose, for you guys in terms of the digital factor, right? 
because you don't necessarily have to print discs or cartridges anymore like the old days so that it, yeah. it decreases a significant cost yeah yeah um it, it does help when you only have to focus on yeah you're gonna you're gonna be sending data basically <laughs> selling data to someone <laughs> is uh it'd be a weird way to turn it but ultimately yeah we're a data sales company yeah <laughs> it sounds, sounds a lot less interesting than a video game company yeah I, I mean i <clears> suppose um, that is what it is yeah yeah but that's what we're all everyone in the industry is doing um you i think there's there's lots of new business models these days things like game pass as well and the way in which you can reach larger audiences is ever evolving and cloud gaming's um you know it's only going to get more robust moving forwards as well I, i can see a point in time where every developer may be better off just trying to sell direct to their fans uh, regardless of platform and just use a cloud streaming technology at some point. I, I, you know, I could be talking 20 years away. I don't know what, but you'd be able to, you're going to be able to be able to sell your game to a global audience of billions and try and attract people to play your game, whether they're playing it on a, on a mobile, a tablet, um, a console, a, a, a PC, any, any kind of screen, even the TV, um, we could just be going direct to consumer um, in in future. Yeah, well, I, I see streaming as the future. As to how far in the future, who knows? But it's yeah, usually yeah. music and film kind of do it first, and then gaming follows. Usually, yeah, yeah not long yeah. after. They'll, they'll always be, you know, they'll always be these big kind of uh, the platforms. Always be these channels and distribution key holders. For, for things and you know it's particularly when they're offering funding as well um like microsoft with game pass do which has been a big game changer um uh, but moving forwards there's going to be opportunities for for a lot of people to kind of be their own platform i think yeah so i suppose you guys have already had those chats within uh platonic about where to go with this yeah 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 and um Right now, the focus is still, look, we want all our games playable where all our core audience is right now, and that's console and PC. There's mm. growth to be had on mobile, and there'll be growth in future on cloud as well, but it's a little bit unpredictable as to when's going to be the right time. Kind of want to get in there a little bit ahead of the explosion, should it happen. Um, yeah, if anyone can let me know when that's going to happen and predict get a crystal ball out I, I'll, I'll prepare for it but right now we can only focus on what we know um and, and carry on with what we've been doing but again it's it's inevitable the industry constantly evolves so how do you try and keep your finger on the pulse because you're obviously a family man <coughs> and you're <coughs> leading a game company and yet you have still got to try and stay up with technology you, you just don't sleep i'll be honest <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's actually quite quite a bit of truth to that. I think. Um, yeah, my poor wife. She can never get a decent conversation out of me in the evening. She'll talk to me and she'll just see I'm glazed over, looking into the distance, thinking about something. Um, so, yeah, it's it's difficult. It's challenging, but um, someone's got to do it. 
<laughs> you know, you've got a lot of people reliant on you and trusting you with their careers. Yeah, um, no pressure, right? <laughs> I know that's that's the biggest single pressure I've ever felt since setting up a company that you're you're responsible for the welfare of, of people's livelihoods. Um, and honestly, it's it, it it's that level of fear into doing doing that not so well, which has always made me not take a foot off the gas. I'm not like pedaling forwards as fast as possible thinking, oh yeah, this is all about me. This is all about doing this. And this is all about achieving it. It's all about, oh, make sure everyone's looked after. Make sure you're doing this. So lots of people um, are, are, are in a really good position and in a safe place. Well, particularly in this day and age, because you hear so much about crunch and management problems and how it can affect the people in the trenches. So it's good that you're well aware of that to try and prevent that from happening. I mean, obviously, curveballs always happen in the industry and there's no way you can plan or you can plan. But there's stuff that always comes up in development that just catches you off guard. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we're the perfect management team in the company at all. We... We just know what we know and put heads down and crack on and do with it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure certain decisions sometimes get made and people think, why, 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 why? <laughs> and um, <clears throat> there's good, valid reasons. You know, you know why, why, why we're trying to do things a certain way or what we're trying to build for the future. We've, you know, people hear decisions that affect their, their workload in the short term, but you've made these decisions with an eye on a long-term goal. Um, which yeah, is, you know, a lot more difficult to to convey um, sometimes. So hopefully we'll we'll always keep trying. We've got this appetite to keep trying and improving, and and you know, in every way as an operation as you can to to make things clearer and, and better. Um, but those challenges are always going to exist. We've seen them exist in every company, every business, everywhere does that. Um, like right now, the changes we're making to how the structure and hierarchy of the company and the individual disciplines are, it's all about making the, the teams more flexible and interchangeable moving forward as we transition to multiple projects on the go at once. And the idea is to maybe try and have a game out every single year from Platonic and have teams of different sizes um, kind of uh, on those games. And as one game ships that year, there's a, the bulk of the staff who were on that game are ready and prepared to go straight on to the next game coming in down, down the line as, wow. as well and, and hit the ground running. So the way we're making sure things are done with parity across all games from a core technology perspective is, is really important. And people hear about us saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do this core technology way. And someone might think, oh, but I was doing it this way on one game and they were doing it that way. And they're saying, oh, it's got to, kind of got to be the same way because, you know, there's going to be benefits to be able to have people be so flexible and interchangeable. Um, and they see a lot of upsides as well. People say, oh, wow, we're going to get credits on lots of games really quick if we're shipping a game out every year. And I, I get to c contribute to multiple games. And that's a big positive, for example. You know, we know of a lot of people in the industry who perhaps are working on a game which is already seven years into development and has still got this kind of like probably two or three years left of development ahead of them. And that's like one game for 10 years. And it's not that uncommon now. Um Whereas we don't have that. And an another benefit of us doing this as well means we can avoid crunch. You know, if, if another game is a bit behind where we need it to be, 
we don't have to say to those people on that team, work harder, do more hours. And, you know, we've never said that anyway. <laughs> but but when we can say, oh, no, no worries. You know what? We've got these people on these other games, which aren't so time critical right now. The, the tools, the technology, the pipelines are exactly the same as what they're using on their game. We can borrow their right. skills and, and, and introduce it to this game and help get, get a game back on track. So honestly, we're making all these decisions for, for great reasons. Um, finding the time to communicate everything clearly and consistently and, and is, is, is always a challenge. We're, we're, we're very time poor people in the day as, as well. So, um, but we're doing well and it's a it's a very big period for the companies we transition from what has been one team to to multiple teams um with uh with, let's say more than one game on the go yeah so are you <clears throat> going to try and echo back to how rare was in terms of the different genres of games like because back in the rare day there were 3d platformers there were first person shooters there were third person shooters uh, is that the kind of direction you want to go with Platonic? absolutely we're, we're kind of we're kind of saying like rare was looking got away with it back then in a way that they were so important to the nintendo platform that it didn't matter that they had three or four 3d platformers on the go like mm. no other business would make well let's let's do 3d platforming with three or four different ips you wouldn't you'd put all your eggs in one basket and double down on it right yeah and yeah, we look at that and go, yeah, the, the ukulele universe is built to be exist in multiple genres. Um, so we'll see characters throughout different games and experiences take starring roles in different genres. And um, what else will, again, didn't make sense back at Rare, and I said it earlier on, was the fact that they just didn't try and time their releases apart from each other. And that's something that we'll, we'll be doing. So ex- expect to see games in different genres from us and hopefully spaced apart quite nice and evenly. So it kind of makes sense, but there's a benefit to that to the, the commercial side of things, but there's also a benefit of that to, to our staff side of things as well, in terms of being able to um, give them opportunities on multiple games and, and multiple growth opportunities within different roles on the teams and, and get those credits. Mm, that's actually a very, very good idea. Are you, are you probably going to advocate Thank for, you. Thank for, you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> advocate for ukulele to maybe be in the next Smash Brothers. Is that the hope one day? <laughs> I, you, you know what? They, they can go hopefully wherever they like. And you can't, you can't set that as a goal, right? Oh, no. You that's just, just that, that could just be one of those things it, that goes into the it, wish list. Yeah. yeah. It, it will only Because that's completely out of your control. Yeah. yeah, it will only happen if you earn it. And the only way to earn it is to produce, I think, time after time, amazing games, making those characters appeal, go far and wide and, and larger each time. So it's if it happens, it happens for the best of reasons. Um, and we don't have bribe money sitting around, so we can't <laughs> go down that route anyway. We, we've got to do it the long way. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Well, um, hey, I'll, I'll, uh... I'm not suggesting, by the way, anyone has bribed their way into Smash Brothers. I'm not saying that. It was, it was just... Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good to have that clause there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for taking time out. I very much appreciate it. 
no, it's lovely. I've, I've enjoyed it too. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone wants to keep up to date with what's happening with Platonic, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, follow follow our social media channels. Um, you know, we're we're publishing now. We've we've always got lots of stuff to talk about, and we'll be no doubt talking about a bit more of our internal stuff soon. It's been a nice, quiet, secretive couple of years. Um, uh, and it's going to be one thing we love to do is just not with with our games. We love the way we're going to entertain and engage with our, our fans be fun as well. And, you know, there's a lot to reveal and a lot to talk about in due course. So, yeah, follow us on our, on our social channels, on, on, on our new website as well. We've got a we did a website change and that's being updated constantly right now. And hopefully mm. we can even do a few more things in the future, do some streaming and uh, and give people a real insight into what's going on behind our, the walls of our, as you can see, low, right now the office is, is bare. It's just me. And this won't be our office. <laughs> that's that's dedication, well. you see. That's yeah, yeah. Early riser. It's just, it's just easy for me to come into the work and uh, not, not work from home like the rest of the team are. They don't they don't have what I call a hurricane Phoebe, my, my, my little daughter, to contend with. <laughs> so uh, it's, I couldn't work at home anymore. I, I have to come into the office. Fair enough, fair enough. And hopefully um, this pandemic will be over soon and um, normality can somewhat return. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice to get back to those those ways that we, we really enjoyed in the past, that way of working, that camaraderie and people all around each other kind of you know being able to discuss things face to face and on the spur of the moment bounce something back and forth so, mm. yeah really, really look forward to that yeah cool well thanks again gavin i appreciate it that is the show everyone make sure you share like and subscribe and until next time stay safe